Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to write his dissertation and eventually to get a job. Uh, and today I am joined by my colleague, uh, Brandon Kirk Williams, also known as BK Williams. Uh, Brandon is a PhD candidate in the Department of History at UC Berkeley, and you study global history. Is that your is that like your first field? That's what you not technically. It's it's the United States and the world, and then sort of slash global international history. Okay, so it, that was owed more towards the issues of the dragging of feet in the history department. Okay, well we don't need to go to, go into <laughs> yeah. that. But but you but you but you study this interesting thing, which is like world history. Like, big international movements. And we're going to be talking about uh, the interaction between the U.S. and one particular country, Indonesia, right? Yeah, that's correct. Okay, so I have to admit, I lived in Australia for a little bit where we have a lot of great Indonesian food. We have, like, Indonesian noodles, yeah. um, mie goreng, very Indonesia. tasty. That's all I know about Indonesia. Um, can you tell me a little bit about, like, the history of Indonesia so that I don't get lost? Like, where is it? And... and Get me situated so I feel comfortable in the 20th century. Yeah. So Indonesia is an archipelago. It's a in Southeast Asia, just north of Australia, south of Vietnam, and of course east of India. So Indonesia is this vast spread and expanse of islands, um, bordered in the north by the South China Sea, and it's where it currently is sort of has some conflict with some of its neighbors, but. Indonesia is part of this sort of vast expanse of islands, as I said, that were brought together primarily under Dutch colonial control. Now, the the Dutch East Indies Company, each East Indies Company, pardon me, basically had colonial control until the end of the 19th century, and then the state, the Dutch state, stepped in and sort of formalized the processes of colonialism, going through a couple of periods where they tried to crack down on colonial excesses by private traders and entrepreneurs. And and so why were the, the Dutch there? Like what did, what was the point of being there? Spices. Spice. Oh yeah, because Indonesian food's super spicy. Is that like, am I wrong in thinking that's where like a lot of the spices we use are native to, right? Um, a good majority of them are, yes. Like, as I understand it. Nutmeg and cinnamon. Cinnamon. A variety of peppers, especially. Okay, so 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 Indonesia is like a a big archipelago that has like a very rich like ecological heritage that the Dutch controlled for a really long time. Yeah. Okay. It also had some strategic importance because as it does today, the Straits of Makassar, which if you're transiting from, for instance, South Asia to East Asia, you have to pass through straits that Indonesia now controls. Mm. So there were strategic and commercial opportunities for the Dutch. That's why it was a, a prime area for colonization right for colonization okay and so we have a, a colonial government at first it was it was controlled by a, a trading company who just yeah. took spices and you know did colonial excesses then it was controlled by the dutch state yeah. let's bring it let's let's go into the middle of the the 20th century what happens to to to, to this uh, uh in the middle of the 20th century so the the biggest event is actually the second world war it's japan's invasion um, of Indonesia as a sort of the Japanese empire moved south. At this point, Japan is also very well aware, we talked about spices, but also oil. Oh. Indonesia is rich in oil. So for their war machine, they needed to have access to petroleum products. Yeah, and they so, didn't have like any petroleum products. Exactly. And they, were, they thought of themselves as like a big naval power and you need oil to right. run a navy. Especially when Pearl Harbor does not, in fact, knock the United States out of the war. They recognize that they must, they will be fighting a large naval campaign against the United States. Oh. So they needed to have access to those resources. Okay. So they kick the Dutch out. And for many Indonesians, this is an opportunity where there is some minor sponsorship, at least in name, of, of independence. Because hmm. the Japanese want to be seen as sort of liberating their Asian brothers and sisters. What was what was their like <clears throat> their 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 uh, whole ideology called? Their ideology about invading, like they didn't call themselves like conquerors or colonial. Women. No, they didn't. And it's I'm spacing the co prosperities. Yes, the Asian yeah. coast, Asian coast prosperity sphere. Yes, yeah. thank you. Like we think of the the, the Japanese in World War II, like the Nazis who are just steamrolling everybody and like 
murdering, but the, the, the idea of Japanese imperialism was like, no, we're making an Asian co-prosperity sphere. We're, gonna, yeah. we're all going to get rich together. So some people bought it, and you're saying during the Second World War. Yeah, I think for many Indonesians, there was an awareness, one of the fragility of the Dutch. Mm. Just once the Nazis knocked them out, which what they were steamrolled, they, they crumbled. Yeah. Um, and I think there was an understanding from, on the Indonesian side of the limits of Dutch colonial power and control. I mean, they, I think they could very well understand that they sim- the Dutch simply weren't that strong. Yeah. So there may be more than building an ideology. It was this awareness of just the weakness of the Dutch. Yeah. But in, in many ways, the, the Japanese re- sort of did nothing more than repeat the processes and systems of colonial control by the Dutch. Yeah. Now, they, they may have opened up more and, and tried to sponsor and nurture a sense of nationalism, at the same time, it was that was often only done to produce better access to resources. Oh, okay, you said something that's interesting. You sponsor and nurture a source of na- nationalism. So, like, explain that to me, because for me, like, I just I I was born in America. There's like a flag. Like, yeah, nations just like happen, right? Like, they're just kind of natural. Like, that's what I thought. That like, you just. You know, wasn't there like an Indonesian flag before the Dutch came and like when they get independence, they're just taking that back? No, no. And I, I, the process of, of nation building nationalism is well written by the Southeast Asianists now, of course, passed, but the Southeast Asianists, especially the Indonesian specialist, Benedict Anderson, uh, the book Imagine Communities, short, but certainly packs a wallop, outlines sort of the processes by which nation states are con- constructed nationalism is born in the case of indonesia the the japanese if i remember correctly this is where my knowledge the the war the wartime experience is a little thin yeah but they start allowing for greater sense of freedom for Mm -hmm. the indonesians so like publishing newspapers and national languages stuff like that yeah so they especially they're allowing the idea that they that they're sponsoring sort of an Indonesian political awakening. Mm. So in that case, yes, publishing, you know, it's very much censored and controlled, but publishing does start to increase a little bit more because no longer is there the heavy footprint thumb of, of the Dutch colonial, which Dutch colonial masters, which are very much concerned about uprisings. Yeah. The Japanese at least can try to pitch themselves as not doing that. Okay. So the Japanese occupation of, of Indonesia doesn't last forever. What happens uh, in 1945 when it, when it ends? Or does it end in 1945? Ends in 1945. Technically, Declaration of Independence, the Indonesian Declaration of Independence is 1945. The, the British ultimately kick the Japanese out of, of Indonesia. However, then the Dutch immediately pop back in mm. and try to reassert their control. What follows is, of course, a, a gruesome, long, about five-year war oh, wow. for control of Indonesia. Really? So after, after like, I always think of the, the, the Second World War as ending in 1945. Like, suddenly it's, it's VE Day and there's peace for a while. But, but immediately after, there's a five-year five war. Technically, it runs for actually about four years. I think it's in 1949, 1950, it's sort of permanently resolved. Yeah. Oh, man, that's, that's brutal. That's, yeah. that's really awful. In fact, so one thing that we have to think about the United States and the Cold War and their, their responsibility in sponsoring governments that are there were gross human rights violators and just some truly gruesome folks... Um, the United States played a crucial role and, in fact, pushed the Dutch to surrender sovereignty hmm. over to the Indonesians. In fact, what they said is if you – President Truman says, if you want to keep this up, we will no longer give you martial plan aid. Oh, wow. Really? So he used the power of the purse to force compliance on the part of the – on the Dutch. The Dutch had lost, but they refused to surrender. Hmm. So, in fact, Harry Truman – uh, President Sukarno and then sort of this soft authoritarian Sukarno who leads the country praises Truman for years because Truman was aware that it was a black eye for the United States and the West and that it was a lost cause. Wow. Okay. So tell me, tell me a, a little bit, a bit about Sukarno and, and, and what happens after the Dutch are, 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 are kicked out. So Sukarno is this... He's this amazing figure. He's charismatic. He's larger than life. He's 
you know, stage presence for miles. Is he like tall? Is he a tall guy or? No, he's, he was short. Uh, I believe he had incredible acne scars hmm. and, but he was a bit of Lothario. Like, you know, he was, people love Sukarno. Yeah. And <clears throat> so what happens is there's, you can think about Indonesian history from 1950, let's say, until 1998 in, in three periods, mm-hmm. roughly. The first one is 1950 to 1957. There's this attempt at parliamentary democracy. Yeah. Ultimately, it fails. Okay. Uh, Sukarno is the president, but he does not have formal political control. There's a prime minister with a parliament. And what happens is... Sukarno's explanation is that there's chaos. There's constant overturn. There's new governments every couple of years, and or it's in some cases less. Mm. And so his opinion is that we I need to be the force to bring the country together. This is also at a time where it's, when Sukarno is pitching himself as a leader of the global south at the Afro Asian Conference in 1955 in Bandung. Sukarno is sort of this this figure who's seen as trying to bring a a non-aligned movement into birth. Let's 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 come back to that. I, I, you said that's the first stage. Let's just get those other two okay. stages and we'll dig into that okay. first stage. So first is parliamentary. Yeah. 1950 to 1957. And then 1957 to 1965 is guided democracy. Democracy. Guided democracy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'll happily talk about that. And then there's sort of this, I wouldn't necessarily call it a period. It's a, about a year or so working out um, that is... And something we should talk about, which is slaughter. Mm. Um, vast. Some people call it genocide. I'm not so sure that I believe that. But um, at least 500,000 Indonesian communists are, are massacred. 500,000? At least 500,000. Uh, that's that's a that's an agreed-upon estimate. However, there are certainly other estimates. And then there's that doesn't include people who are tossed in these sort of uh, jungle gulags. That's, that's, it's, that's a jaw-dropping number and a jaw-dropping that, that we don't know about it like yeah that's it's that's stunning and the the massacres are the stuff of nightmares yeah. uh joshua oppenheimer's films uh the look of silence and the act of killing it they're they're scalding movies to watch but they very much lay out sort of the processes of mass murder how it was conducted and it's it is not for the faint of heart it's it's tough stuff so after that's 1965 to 1966. In 1967, uh, a general uh, takes control, General Suharto, and he runs under something. He, pardon me, his. It's basically a hard authoritarianism known as the New Order, which is Orda Baru in Indonesia. And that's 1967 to 1998. Wow, 1967 to 1998. 67 it's Suharto to 90. for that entire time. Yes, it's the New Order for that entire time. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So just to recap, we have three stages. Three we stages. have uh, uh, parliamentary democracy, yep. which is messy and chaotic. Yeah. We have guided democracy, which is like soft authoritarianism. Yeah. We have a, and then we have a slaughter <coughs> that serves as a pivot between that and the decades-long rule of Suharto. Yeah. So let's 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 talk about Sukarno and guided democracy and the Bandung Conference. Is that yeah? Is that a good, sounds great. So so I just want to know, like, you're talking about uh, uh, Sukarno. He's a charming guy. What did he do to get famous? Like, what what was his job before he became like a leader? Before 1950. Yeah. He was always sort of this political resistance figure. I can't remember. He may have been trained as an engineer in one of these Dutch schools Mm. in Indonesia. But he, one of the things, one of the factors or features, pardon me, he cultivated was voice. Hmm. And he found a way, one, to harness the power of radio. And he was adept at using the technology in that sense. Yeah. And he was just... He was a master politician. Okay. I mean, I, I think we, I should probably just say that he's a politician par excellence. So, was, so, was really so he wasn't like a, 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 a general or he wasn't like a, a, a rich guy. He was a engineer who figured out that he was a really great communicator and then took advantage of a new media form to, to, to capture people's yeah. attention. And this isn't to say that, I mean, by all accounts, Sukarno was, while he did not lead campaigns or, fighting any battles he was a committed nationalist figure hmm. who sought to kick the dutch out okay and, and fight against colonialism he was an anti-colonial figure 
Okay. That that was something I shouldn't, you know, I want to make sure I draw the line between politician who might be, you know, insincere. He he was both of those things. He married them together with sincerity, I believe. Okay. And then so you have this trial of of, of parliamentary democracy, which you said is like, well, as we know from our yeah. own experience of democracy, it's, it's messy, nothing gets yeah. done. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Or should we or should we go to guide, guide, the, the response to that? I think we should go to guided democracy. I mean, the thing that I real quick want to foreground is that if you compare British control over India mm. and the levels of development to Indonesia, you would see a stark difference. The Dutch simply did not develop Indonesia very well. Well, that's shocking to me because when I, you know, kind of the, the, the my received understanding of British colonial rule in India is that it was like almost entirely extractive, that yeah. like they just ripped out value and like didn't give anything back. So comparing that to, 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 the uh, Dutch Indonesia, the Dutch just did even less. Uh, that is my understanding. I think Dutch control over Indonesia is weaker. Mm. Certainly. Um, I also think there was less extractive impulse for the Dutch early on. Now, if they would have stayed longer and started pulling out oil, then it may have changed. <laughs> that okay. could have been a catalyst okay. thing to change. So, so I, I, it, it, something's curious to me about this shift uh, uh, from parliamentary chaos to guided democracy. Yeah. Uh, I spoke to, to our colleague Craig Johnson uh, a couple weeks ago about uh, the history of the right wing. And something that he said is that uh, one of the things that, that, that really distinguishes fascism from other political movements is that they really believe in violence as a political tool, mm -hmm. the clarifying power of violence. And I, you, you, I think you see it again and again. You have like the messiness of political life where problems can never be solved, right. where people are always unheard of. And they have some people saying, look, we have the easy solution. Me. Yeah. <laughs> Charisma or, or, yeah. or a person or, 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 or kicking out the bad people or killing the bad people. Is this what happens in, in the Indonesian case or am I, I, I wrong? The slaughter definitely happens in 1965 to 66. Yeah. Violence as a way of life is definitely instituted during this period. The earlier period with Sukarno, though, it's very much him. Okay. Now, I, uh, I'm not an Indonesian specialist. I've spent a fair amount of time in Indonesia yeah. years and have spent a lot of time reading. And so I'm, I'm careful where I tread. But I think one thing to say is this, is that... Sukarno, who is Javanese, very much was rooted in Javanese mysticism. Okay, Java is one of the islands. Sorry, Java, in, yes, in, in, one of the most populated islands in the world, uh, oh, densely wow. populated. Jakarta, the capital, is, is based there. And Bali's just an island over. Uh, so he's very much steeped in Javanese mysticism, which is this, rooted in this idea that there will be one figure to unite. Hmm. And there is, I mean, there's a fair amount of scholarly work that says, especially by Benedict Anderson, that says what Sukarno was trying to do was to capture this, this spirit, and hmm. to control. And so, what Sukarno sets out to sets out to do, pardon me, is he seeks to establish this notion where he can balance all of the contending forces, and they will be subservient to him. Huh. Now. Does he, does he do it? Is he good at it? No. Okay. no it doesn't work. Uh, it, the historian, the Indonesian historian uh, Adrian Vickers says that, in fact, some of the slaughter, the political disorder and chaos that happens in 1965 and 66 is owed. So there's one person responsible, and that's Sukarno. His and, failure to, to yeah. do this juggling act, to yeah. be the sole mediator yes. of this messy thing. And especially, although certainly Islamist political parties... But also the Indonesian military and the Indonesian Communist Party, which the Indonesian Communist Party is massive outside of Russia, or the Soviet Union, pardon me, and China. It's the, the world's largest. It's also really? In, really? in a democratic state. Yeah. So they're, they, they're all spread throughout the archipelago, which is also what makes sort of the, the massacre so, so deep and gruesome. But Sukarno cannot organize power as well as they think he can. He also, this gets back to this issue of development. And when I've looked at development on the ground, there simply, in some cases, aren't the resources 
to launch development projects in the late 50s and early 60s. No matter what Sukarno tries to force through, there simply isn't the infrastructure in some cases. There's not enough housing, there's not enough roads, there are enough cars, there, there's enough office space and office materials for Western development he, sort of entities. So he can't, he can't, uh, he can't like give 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 proof to the promises that he's making. Correct. He's saying it's going to be me. I'm going to unite the country. I'm going to give everybody uh, uh, good stuff. I'm going to make the political divisions disappear. And he fails. Yes. But before we get to that failure and the switch, I just want to talk about the the, the Bandung Conference. Oh yeah. Pardon and me. how um, like like th- this political vision kind of got global in a way. Okay. Do you, yeah, tell me about what the band. I, I have to admit, I have been in seminar rooms, perhaps with you, talking about global history, and people mention Bandung as like a thing that I should know, and I nod and I smile, <laughs> and I don't know what it is. So tell me yeah. what Bandung is. Okay, so first off, thinking where we're at, Bandung is a city not too far from Jakarta, but on the island of Java. Okay. It's often, I think, sometimes called the, the Paris of Java. Something, something to that effect. It's a city with multiple universities. It's a cultural literate space. And essentially, Sukarno teams up with president or also authoritarian Gamal Abdel Nasser from Egypt and Nehru in India to sort of bring it together and create this new sense of a non-aligned movement that was neither following the Soviets, nor the United States, right? It was this, they were piloting a middle course. And so they they agreed to host this conference. It would be based in Indonesia and in Bandung, the city of Bandung, and everyone would be invited. Uh, the primary representatives would be from especially Asian states. Uh, now there are some African states, however, since many of them are still very much under the yoke of colonialism, they were not able to participate. And what year was this? This is 1955. Okay. Yeah, really. I'm pretty sure it's like, I may have well, spaced, but... but we're, so we're at the dawn of the Cold War. Yeah. It's, 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 it's at the time when, when, when this big ideological struggle between capitalist West and uh, uh, communist East is starting to become undeniable. Yes. And here you have three countries, and I, I, I want to just point out how important these three countries are, right? Like to an American, you might go, oh, Egypt, India, and Indonesia. But these place, places make a ton of primary goods, right? Yeah. Like they're really important for the global economy. And especially Egypt, it's the it's one of the main arteries. The Suez Canal is one of the main arteries for global commerce at yeah. the time. So and they are, and these three figures are the vanguard of an anti-imperial, anti-colonial spirit. Yeah. That is certainly not, because it's certainly not Mao, and it's not coming from the Soviet Union or the United States, right? They are a voice, yeah, a new voice that has seemed to have been endowed with a lot of authority and power in the, in the international system. Yeah. And so tell me about what that voice is saying at this conference. Like, like it's amazing enough that it's happening and people are coming together. <coughs> what's the what's the promise? What's it what's it speaking? Well, so here's where if you if one digs into the conference, rhetoric and reality collide. Because mm-hmm. in many cases, what some of these folks are saying, there's right, you'd have a representative from Pakistan speaking about really the the South Asian relationship. Or the same thing with Malaysia, uh, British Malaysia, and Indonesia, right? There's there's a lot of conflict that's being worked out at the Bandung Conference among neighbors mm. in these regions. Mm. And so the idea, and, re, and really in many ways nothing concrete comes out of it, except from perhaps a spirit. Okay. Which, that's ill-defined, and I'm well, always... What's that spirit? Tell me, like, just, just give me, like, an impressionistic view of what that spirit is. Spirit that the old way of politics, mm. the European style of politics, which very much defines the United States and the Soviet Union, has had its day, and that day is over. Oh wow! And that the global South is now going to, in some cases, dictate their own terms on for the first time, without being subservient to the West or East. And in principle, that is radical. Yeah. Uh, now the. In many ways, the the sort of the Bandung leaders are either within the next few years, like as I said, Sukarno has turned towards authoritarianism. Uh, Nehru, in a year after Bandung, really doesn't care as much about it. That's what I learned from Nehru's papers. Um, and so we see the passing of the Bandung generation, that spirit, pretty quickly. 
And so I'm, I have some skepticism about how pervasive people clung to the idea of Bandung mm. and its importance of challenging the, the conventional wisdom of politics, geopolitics, or the old order of business. You know, it, it, stop me if I'm wrong, but it, it seems to me that, that, that what you're talking about is another promise that failed. Yeah. Um, that, that, that there was this, this, this big question of how to organize uh, nations in places that didn't have like, self, that didn't have the nation before. How are we going to like make power and legitimize ourselves? And how are we going to like make alliances between one another? How are we going to like like get some sense of, of transnational solidarity? And the Bandon Conference was a proposal. Like, hey, we're going to be like the group of non-aligned states. We're going to stand yeah. between the East and the West, and we're going to like get you know uh, get rich together. And it failed in the same way that that in your description. Uh, the shift towards parliamentary democracy in Indonesia failed. Yeah. It did not fulfill its promise. Yeah. It's brief, but there is promise, and perhaps it is inspiration. Mm. Uh, that is harder to measure, and so I, I have some skepticism. Um, I just have some healthy skepticism of the power of Bandung or its spirit. So I'm always a little cautious and, and wanting to push. I think a fair amount of historians have clung to the idea that it has this power and resonance that I'm simply not sure that I agree with. Well, historians like conferences because they, <laughs> they make sources, BK. They yeah, make sources and true. archives and people write speeches and there's photos. And you, <laughs> and you have you can see the, you know, all the important people sitting in the yeah. same room together. So uh, let's, let's talk about uh, another one of Sukarno's failures and let's talk about how the situation turns from uh, uh, guided democracy into into massacre. If, if we've if we've yep. touched on guided democracy enough, yeah. I mean, I think something that I sort of said he couldn't manage. Sukarno, when I say he, Sukarno couldn't manage it. He withdraws from the the United Nations. Oh wow. Um, he is very much trying to towards in 1964. He launches this quixotic war against Malaysia, uh, 63, 64, and into 65. It's just. I mean, I don't want to say coming off the rails because it makes him sound like he's crazy because I think he was very much a rational actor, but his policies were failed. Hmm. And I believe in 1965, inflation is at 500%. It goes oh, over 666, I believe. Um, Indonesia's vast, you know, vast wealth in gold. It did not have enough uh, gold on hand to pay debts and service its foreign loan debt. Indonesia was running out of money. They were pump. They were, of course, falling into a standard inflationary trap. They were just pumping out money, printing money. Pardon me, in order to try to help people still buy basic foodstuffs, especially rice. But it, inflation was getting away from him, and he had a what was first thought to be a stroke in August of 1965. Uh, turns out it was something much minor, much more minor. Pardon me, but there was concerns about his health. I mean, and, you can't have a charismatic leader who's meant to unite the country and by dint of their personality who <clears throat> can false, fall ill, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it shoots all of his sort of authority in the foot in some yeah. ways. Yeah. So, so you have a number of, of, of big demonstrable failures. You have a failed war. You have a failing economy. Yeah. You have a failure to – you have an attempt – to uh, help people buy rice, the key staple, and that is beginning to fail. And that's a failure that people feel with their bellies every day. Yeah. And then you have failed health. Yes. And then on top of this, so those are some of the domestic factors that get us to 1965. On top of this, we have the influence of international actors, the United States, the West. The Soviets were actually, in fact, sort of washing their hands with Sukarno. They thought he was, he was unstable. And so they did not. And the Soviets had also spent billions of dollars. Yeah. Uh, and some of their satellites had had spent a lot of money trying to prop Sukarno up. Oh, wow. And they, they saw it as a failed investment. The other international actor, though, is Mao. Uh, Mao is very much supporting the Indonesian Communist Party and is working at times to undermine Sukarno by building up and sort of pushing in fact, the Indonesian Communist Party to prepare for Sukarno's death 
or for a military coup against Sukarno. Wow. So we have three big international actors. You have the U.S. who are not pleased with Sukarno, probably, yeah. because he doesn't want their influence. Yeah. You have uh, 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 Russia, who tried to prop him up and then said, hey, it's not worth it. And you have Mao, who's actively propping up the people who he hopes will step in yeah. when he uh, 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 leaves the scene. Yeah. I would also subsume uh, Australia and the UK, also sort of within the sort of Western US alliance trying to okay. And Australia's undermine. super important yeah. because of the mining interests, which we, which we might talk about. Uh, yeah. If you've heard of like... Uh, Rio Tinto, one of the biggest uh, companies on earth, right? Mm -hmm. uh, certainly one of the most profitable. Uh, they are Australian, I think. I believe so. Yeah, they're at least staffed with tons of Australians, <laughs> and they get a lot of their 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 money from from mining in, in Indonesia. Okay, so tell me what happens when can we shift to when Sukarno leaves the scene? Yeah, so I mean, this is where we get into it's it's just confusing. Yeah, and I actually. I think the story is is pretty cut and dry. So I'm going to tell you my narrative um, with the understanding that I don't think we'll ever know. Good. We, we'll, we can put a number of, uh, yeah. you know, of, of asterisks after it, but, but invisible asterisks. Okay. So there is a propaganda campaign by the United States and through their, the United States and the Western intelligence agencies that there might be a coup sponsored by the military. Mm. And what year are we talking about? This is 19, sorry, this is uh, this is 1965. This is August and September 1965. Okay. Now Jakarta is rife with rumors of coup, military coup, communist coup, right? The the problem isn't that it's just one party. It's just that there there are multiple actors here, and there's so much going on domestically and internationally that it was set to boil over. And finally, on the night of September 29, 1965, some Air Force officers kidnap and then murder several of their superiors hmm. and they then the indonesia the next morning the indonesian communist party starts to proclaim that they're there they're going to protect sukarno from this general's coup this military coup um now whether that was reality or not that's pretty hard to say uh it does if that were the case the united states and everyone seems to be very much caught off guard by that looking at the, the excellent documents for how the United States responds, how the president, because the president is the one who sets policy at all times. If the president, President Lyndon Johnson, were aware of this, it's not reflected in the diplomatic record now. So, so this, this idea that the CIA planted rumors of a coup is unlikely, you think, because when you look at people's reaction to what's happening, the person who would have been directing it is like, what, what on earth? Yeah. <laughs> right? So I think they insert other people help push this. Yeah. But whether that's the catalyst, I'm not always convinced. Okay. Because if you look at what the Indonesian Communist Party is doing, they're very much preparing for this. So is the military. And the military was very well prepared to undertake a campaign of slaughter. Okay. But it fails. It fails. This sort of the the this coup yeah. fails, and then arguably there's a counter coup by the military and led by Suharto and okay. this general named Nasution. And what they do is they conduct this, they undertake this campaign of slaughter with extreme prejudice um, of who of the Indonesian Communist Party. So the military, along with local allies, especially sort of Muslim political parties. Um, murder they undertake a vast expanses of, of murder slaughter in in indonesia in bali, every island or just just java so java bali sumatra and some of the outlying islands are the worst sites uh, of murder and i just so so this is really shocking because i'm still trying to get a sense of what actually happened to precipitate it so there's a moment when a number of junior officers Air Force officers kill yeah. their superiors in the name of communism? So they had the support of the maybe two or three top leaders within the Indonesian Communist Party. Okay. Now, the rest of the Communist Party throughout Indonesia was not prepared. I think this yeah. is an important part. This is an important point to draw because some cadre leader in Sumatra did not know what was happening in the capital. And they were equally surprised yeah. by what happened. So... 
the communication networks were actually pretty closed. Okay, so the, so everybody's surprised about this big event, and the big event doesn't happen. The coup fails. The coup fails. Yep. Then uh, Sukarno uh, uh, begins a a campaign of slaughter, not just with the people who who organized the coup, but this relatively well organized uh, uh, group of communist cadres that were funded by Mao. So they weren't necessarily funded by Mao. Okay. Um, they the Indonesian Communist Party was well funded by its within its own organizing okay. organizing principles. Yeah. So, but but it was it was rich on the ground. It wasn't. Yes. It wasn't. It wasn't like it was a minor player. Pardon. There were a lot of communists there. Yes, okay. correct. And so it's Suharto though that launches the the sort of the counter coup and the and the mass murder. Okay. Tell us who Suharto okay. is. So Suharto is a general. I recently, when I was in Indonesia, had a, a conversation with someone who I, I I think I had given Suharto too much credit. And this Indonesian academic told me, he's like, no, Suharto was a bit of a loser. In fact, he wasn't trusted. The reason he wasn't kidnapped and slaughtered was because he wasn't trusted by any of his superiors. They saw <laughs> So these, these Air Force officers saw him as someone who was basically irrelevant, which is yeah. why he wasn't essentially involved in their planning, nor valuable enough for them to kidnap and murder. Mm. And But he had a firm idea of how to respond because the military had been preparing for this moment. And so he simply followed orders mm. and went with some of the prepared operational planning. And so what happens is, so we have General Suharto, and then Sukarno is still president. He's yeah. guided democracy still exists. And what this sets off is about six months, six to 12 months of, of jockeying, political jockeying within Indonesia for control. And so as the slaughter is going on, as the slaughter is going on, the United States is sending some military aid, basically radios. And I think it's likely to say that there are probably suitcases full of cash from the CIA being distributed. Um, now, I will say, I, I do want to say one quick thing. When Whenever anyone reads about this, one of the, the frequently mentioned facts is that the United States, an embassy officer, gave the military a list of, of names. Mm. And about, I think it was 5,000 names, 5,000 names, which is a lot. I'm not going to pretend that it is... It is anything other than that. Um, the the names were collected by open source data, so it wasn't anything. Names of who? Names, oh, sorry. Pardon me. Names of Indonesian communists. Oh, okay. to the military. People to kill. A kill list. Yeah. The thing is that we've now learned that the Indonesian military didn't need that. They were <laughs> yeah. very well prepared. They are. They had a, yeah. a lot more than five thousand names. And in fact, because when we when we think about the the scope of of the slaughter, which mm. I, I just don't know what other word to say other than slaughter. Yeah. Um, it's happening at such a local level that the the effect of that list is nothing more than su- sort of ish, like indicating support of the U.S. government. Um, it's also, you know, 5,000 out of 500,000. It's not, that's not to say that it didn't matter, but I think it's over, its effect is overstated. So we have six months of jockeying between Sukarno and Suharto. Yeah. Um, at the same time as there is a, 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 a slaughter going on all throughout the country. And you said it's local. So, so, so should I imagine during the slaughter that, that, that it is people in the community killing each other? Or is it, or is it uh, uh, military people coming into a city and killing people? Or is it both? It's actually both. And also in some cases, you know... <laughs> Indonesian gangsters, they're called mm. preman, um, who are undertaking the slaughter because the military is like suggesting they do this. So in some cases, it's in the village level, neighbor against neighbor, wow. neighbor murdering neighbor. Okay. Um, well, I know it's yeah, dizzying, it's, right? It's, it's dizzying. <coughs> Five hundred thousand is. Um, well, let's let's jump and talk about Suharto gaining power and and, and the new order. Yeah. Which is a creepy, like if you want. <laughs> Your, yeah. your political uh, uh, movement, anything new order, just it, it's not it. It's scary. Don't don't do that. Call yeah. like, open, you know the Act Party, the, the Turkish Act Party, have, have, have a good, uh, justice and development. But new order. So tell us about the new order. So the new order has its own phases and its own logics. Mm. <clears throat> Pardon me. But the new order essentially comes into power in 1967, and. 
it's very it's concern primary concern after killing communists is stabilizing the economy yeah is it a political party is it no sorry it's it's not a political party there's there's I think it's Gorindra, which becomes a political party, which is the state party, okay. which then swallows up every other organization. We go from from guided democracy to just authoritarian. Yes. Okay. It's I mean it's in that period about a year, but it's the the new order starts taking control pretty swiftly. There still are channels for dissent, mm. but they grow narrower and narrower over time. Okay. Especially into the seventies. Okay. So. The New Order's concern is stabilizing the economy. That's its first order of business. <clears throat> Pardon me. So what that entails, though, is getting international parties on Suharto's side. Yeah. And so that's a little easier said than done. There are re- The United States helps reschedule its debt. Uh, so there isn't this crushing repayment of debt burden weighing down in Indonesia's economy. But the United States is reluctant, actually, to throw their support. Lyndon Johnson's reluctant to throw his support behind Suharto because it, as we said, it's you know it's dizzying, right? It's volatile. Yeah. The situation in Indonesia is volatile. It's no one quite knows whether Suharto is gonna survive. It's not entirely clear. Yeah. In the end, the, the standard story, it's this really pat uh Cold War story that's often told, is that Suharto kills the communists, overthrows Sukarno, and the United States starts showering. Indonesia with support. That's in fact not true. Oh. Um, so, right, just to give you some sort of sense chronologically, right, the, the coup happens in 1965. Uh, we can say October 1st, 1965. And then slaughter. It's not until November 1967 that Lyndon Johnson says, I'm in. I want to support Indonesia. Give me a plan. I want to do everything I can right now. It's, and that's towards the end of his term. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, I think... Vietnam factors into it. Uh, the United States wants the war starting to turn bad, but it's still pre-Tet in 1968. So an American public support had not pivoted strongly against the war. Okay. So, But there's another reason. What? And it's just as simple as can be. It's, it's electoral politics. Because in 1967, Richard Nixon is re-emerging on the political stage as a voice for foreign affairs, for domestic issues, and it's very clear Nixon is going to run. And Nixon had already visited Indonesia in 1967. In, a, in this landmark foreign affairs article, he said Indonesia is arguably the most important uh, nation state in Southeast Asia. So now it can be these variety of factors. It could be Vietnam. But the other reality is that Lyndon Johnson is looking over his shoulder, knowing that he's going to run for re-election in the next year yeah. and sees who his challenger is and is trying to undercut him. And it's really important to, uh, to, 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 to forget what we think of Nixon at this time. Because we think of Nixon as tricky dick, a sweaty yeah. guy who's bad. <laughs> but uh, Nixon's uh, uh, portrayal before that was, was as a um, foreign policy wall. Yeah. Um, he had been vice president. Um, he wrote uh, 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 a number of books, uh, some of which are quite good. Like he was a a, a good writer. He was a, he was a wonk. Yeah. He would have he would have like gone on to to uh, the Weeds podcast on Fox, <laughs> and, like, talked about things. He was a foreign policy wonk. Yeah. And so LBJ is planning on running for a second term, and he now sees like his chief rival going to Indonesia and writing probably a really wonky article, yep. like very detailed about how, no, no, Vietnam is a distraction, I'm guessing. What we really need to do is we need to be focusing on Indonesia. Yeah, in fact, the, the piece is titled Asia After Vietnam. Oh, wow. Okay. So Nixon is looking, and Nixon's certainly not alone, but Nixon realizes that American foreign policy needs to be, the machinery needs to start moving in a different direction because it's a... A variety of people are aware that it is a lost cause and and the trauma that's being inflicted upon the United States, the Vietnamese and the Cambodians, the Thai, everyone in Southeast Asia, that it's it's not tenable and the United States will lose the war. And then, of course, the Tet Offensive rolls in and makes that very clear. So, so, so what's Nixon's plan and what's Johnson? What, what do they what do they plan to do? Like I can get like just vaguely what this idea of support means. You said something about debt rescheduling, but why is it so important for for Suharto to have the U.S. on his side? 
it's sort of this this imprint of political legitimacy mm. that the United States, if it says we are fully behind this authoritarian leader, it provided Suharto credibility. Um, now, Suharto is, is looking for a variety of things, um, Western aid, for sure, um, Western capital. He wants Western foreign direct investment to help provide new streams of revenue for the Indonesians. And money to, to invest in yes. big things. Like you, yeah. you mentioned how... how uh, the Dutch and uh, uh, Sukarno both did not invest as much as they could have in, in infrastructure, yes. roads and ferry lines and stuff like that. And you, for that, you need a ton of money, yeah. a ton of capital. Infrastructure is incredibly expensive. Yeah. And so they need that those capital flows for infrastructure. Yeah. And nobody wants to invest in the infrastructure <laughs> of a country that they think is going to have a civil war. Exactly. And so Sukarno had also kicked all the foreign countries out. Mm. So one of the first, not one of the first, but one of the more prominent acts that the New Order and Suharto pushed through is a change to foreign investment laws mm. to signal that we are open for business. We're sorry. Sukarno's way of, of business is done. We want you here. If you if you buy a company from us, we're not five years later gonna gonna dispossess you yeah. and, and, and and snap it up. Okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about Nixon. We know that Nixon becomes president. LBJ never runs. Yep, um, correct. Because he's he gets depressed over over the Vietnam War. Um, Nixon does become president. What does Nixon do with Indonesia? How does how does Nixon continue this relationship? So we're actually approaching a pretty prominent anniversary after Apollo Eleven splashdown. Uh, of course, I know when that is. <laughs> tell, tell our audience. Uh, so it's I think I think it's July 20, uh, 23, 1969, I believe, okay. is when uh, Apollo Eleven returns. The astronauts return. The moon landing. The moon landing. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So Nixon though is wins this election. It's very close. You know, barely wins the election. But one of his first big trips is to Southeast Asia. Hmm. And so in sort of as the first stop is actually in Guam. And Nixon promulgates, announces this, what becomes known as the Nixon Doctrine. <clears throat> and this, it's a rearticulation of U.S. foreign policy towards Asia. It's, it's only targeted towards Asia at first. Then it becomes globalized. But it's essentially saying that the United States will honor its treaty commitments and anyone under the security umbrella, especially the nuclear security umbrella, will the United States will have its back. However, Americans are done dying in other people's wars, hmm. especially Asian wars. So that's sort of the, the big sort of tent poles of the Nixon doctrine. And so what Nixon wants are strong regional leaders. Right? Japan and Korea are one. But in Southeast Asia, they needed someone who was looking towards the future. And that was Indonesia. So, I mean, thinking just by numbers, Indonesia has the largest economy, has the most people, has the most resources of any other state in Southeast Asia. If you And also, it, it's, it's incredibly strategically important. Exactly, like, yes. You need <clears throat> ocean shipping to get bulk goods places. And if you control the islands in Indonesia, you can control that bulk shipping. Yeah, which becomes essential for the once we have the container revolution, and more into the 80s, and I don't want to get too far ahead, but more into the 80s when we have the explosion of FDI, for, pardon me, foreign direct investment into Asia. Yeah. Um, so Nixon invests in Indonesia. And so he goes to Jakarta as this, you know, he's well received. It's then his third trip to Jakarta. He once as vice president, once as he's preparing to run. And then this is his first time as president. I, I mean, it's amazing to think of American domestic politics now to think that a presidential candidate would make that many trips to Jakarta like that publicly. It's like a big deal. Like that's yeah. like we seem to have forgotten that rule. So so he makes three trips to Jakarta, his third trip to Jakarta. What, what happens then? What is he? What is that's he as president. And, you know, it's kind of owing to the quirks of Kissinger and Nixon. <clears throat> There's no memorandum of conversation. Uh, unless there potentially could be squirreled away somewhere, maybe in Kissinger's papers. Not entirely clear if that's the case. So we don't have a firm understanding, but what we do know is that Nixon leaves Jakarta convinced that Suharto is someone he can trust. Hmm. And Suharto then visits the United States 10 months later, goes to Disneyland. It's a trip DC to Disneyland. 
and he ends in the in the Bay Area. But in when he's in D.C., he gets what he covets the most, which is Nixon's guarantee of support for for his economic plan, this repelita that I mentioned before, this economic development plan. Because after after the economy was stabilized, Suharto very clearly understood that if the economy didn't improve, his head might be the one that comes off next. Yeah. So with the United States' sort of very clear and vocal backing, American capital starts moving in. But more importantly, the United States' sort of dollar, dollar and I shouldn't say just dollar because it's also food. In some cases, it's what's called public law 480 foodstuffs. And that's just excess grains that the United States shares with the world, very much for political purposes during the Cold War. But so Johnson leaves office. It's around $100 million in aid going to Indonesia. Nixon puts it up to 240. 240 million. 240 million. So we go from more than double. More than double. Yeah. So, and it continues that way as long as Nixon is president, right? Nixon just punches it through the roof. So we have this situation where we have gross political instability in Indonesia and bloodshed. Yes. And Nixon's policy is look, we, we, we need political stability in Asia. We're going to do all that we can to ensure political stability yeah. except participate in a war. And he looks and he has political stability in Japan and Korea yeah. and he needs another ally. And he sees uh, 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 Suharto. Suharto's like, hey, I can give you political stability yeah. if you give me economic development. Exactly. And Nixon funnels tons of money, tons of food and opens up the floodgates of private investment. Yeah. And what ha- so like, I think this. I'm guessing it didn't work. Like I'm guessing that like something went wrong. That like uh, American capitalist development made the made made people worse off. Like what what happened? It's a rousing success. It's now, a, wait what really? <laughs> it's a rousing success. I mean, I should also mention that of course, 1973 and the oil embargo happens, and oh, and Indonesia in, has oil. Indonesia has a yeah. tremendous yeah. amount of yeah. oil, and they just start raking it. But at the same time, it's. I don't think anyone really doubts that there's profound economic growth. I think they hit around 7% from 77% economic growth, um, 73 to about 80. And we can, 80. yeah, we can, can, we can attribute that a lot to oil, certainly. But the fact of the matter is that as far as agricultural production and the beginning of industrial production, which was almost down to nothing in 1965, just it explodes. So Indonesia makes significant gains uh, thanks to foreign capital, oil revenues, and Indonesian progress, Indonesian capital that could be channeled towards domestic development. Wow. And so Indonesia becomes the capital success story of Southeast Asia. Now, it's different than Singapore because Singapore didn't have this mass body of peasants. Indonesia does. Singapore's like it's, one rich city yeah, like, like that, exactly. that, that has this big surface economy. <coughs> Indonesia is a vast archipelago with lots of peasants that then then industrializes. Wow, uh, it, this has been fantastic, BK. Yeah. Um, uh, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks, um, Brendan. Love it. Check, if you like the show, uh, remember to subscribe. I should be telling people to subscribe. You can subscribe to iTunes by searching for the making of a historian. You can check out the show notes at historian.live. Uh, thanks again to BK Williams. Thank you to Duncan Barton, who made our image and to Jonathan Lear, who made our music. Uh, And if you like the show, you can do more than subscribe. You can rate and review us on iTunes or tell your friends. And if you have in-laws, remember to tell your in-laws. All (laughs) in-laws like the show. It is our number one demographic. Uh, We will be on next week with my colleague, Amada Beltran. Uh, I will speak to you then.